Scripture reading today will be 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, it's 2020, and how many of you are ready for it? Here we are at the beginning of a new year, and that means we have a new theme to talk about for our congregation, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about this upcoming weekend. Actually, I want to remind you about this upcoming weekend. Many of you are probably already aware. It's been announced in our bulletin for the past month or so. But this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we are going to be having our annual Charge Weekend. And Charge Weekend is designed to encourage, to challenge, to rejuvenate us as God's body of believers. We've got a guest speaker coming in from the Creve Hall congregation in Nashville named Bill Watkins. He'll be here for all of our assemblies to speak to us on the theme of Open Your Eyes. And we want to encourage you to be here Friday night when we meet, Saturday night when we meet, and, and Sunday when he speaks to us in our Bible class time, our morning worship time, and after our fellowship meal at 1 o'clock. Please be advised that next Sunday we will have a, a potluck meal and then a 1 o'clock afternoon service and no 6 p.m. service. And we want you to be here for all of this because the lessons he's going to deliver on the subject of opening your eyes may, in fact, open your eyes to something you haven't been aware of. So please join us for all of these times that we'll be meeting and, and opening God's Word together this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, January 10th through 12th. Now, if you will, if, you ha if you're not there already, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's the start of a new year, and on the first Sunday of the past few years, I've introduced us to a theme that will be the focus of our congregation for that year. Now, why do we have a theme? Well, the way I like to say it is a theme is much like a compass. A compass exists as a navigational tool to provide guidance and direction to help you stay on course when you're traveling. And in similar fashion, we, as the leadership of, of this body, the elders and the ministers collectively, come together to develop a theme that can help guide us through the year, that can help us stay on course through the year, that can, that can inform what we teach and the classes we conduct and the ministries we pursue and the efforts that we engage in. You may recall that two years ago in 2018, our theme was launch. Last year, our theme was follow. Well, this year, being that it's the year 2020, our theme is 2020 Vision. And it's based here out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The tagline of our theme is focusing on what really matters. We came up with that theme based on what is said here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, particularly in verse 18, where we are instructed not to look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We want this year, the year 2020, to be a year in which we as followers of God who have launched out on his mission, who have launched, launched out, man, I cannot talk with this fake tooth in, who have launched out on his mission, 
We want to be followers of God who have launched out on His mission and are focusing on the things that matter to Him. And so this year our theme is 2020 Vision. Now I want you to think for a moment. Do you know what medical condition Jesus healed the most? It was blindness. On five specific occasions in the gospel, Jesus cured someone who was blind. We're also told in Scripture that, there were, that Jesus healed many who were blind, that, that the crowds were bringing numerous people who suffered from blindness, and Jesus was frequently healing blindness. The interesting thing to me is that Jesus, at least in the text of Scripture, healed more blind people than he did lepers. And he healed more blind people than he did those who were lame. And he cured blindness more than he brought people back from the dead. And I think there may be some significance to that. I think maybe the reason blindness was the disease Jesus addressed the most is because it's the disease that relates to our spiritual condition the most. Because one of the greatest problems people have spiritually is their inability to see things clearly. In fact, Jesus would call people out for being spiritually blind. Five times in Matthew chapter 23, he's going to criticize the religious leaders of the day for being blind because they could not see clearly God's will and God's plan. We don't want that to be the case for us as his followers. We want to see things the way God sees things. And so today, in this lesson, as we simply introduce this theme, I want to focus on three areas in which you and I need to improve our vision for 2020. I, I could enumerate on, on a number of different topics and areas in which we need to improve our sight, but these three stand out to me because they are issues that happen in Scripture as well. And so today, let's talk about what we need to focus upon in 2020. And one such area in which we need to focus is on acknowledging God's behind-the-scenes operation. You know, in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a fascinating little story that appears there in the ministry of Elisha. If you turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, you'll find that Elisha is actually in a little bit of a precarious situation. The king of Syria was attacking the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Not the United Kingdom, but the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's the area in which Elisha was a prophet. Now the king of Assyria is attacking the northern kingdom, but Elisha, through divine revelation, is informing the king of Israel as to where the king of Assyria has set up shop so that the king of Israel can prevent from being attacked unexpectedly. Elisha's prophetic efforts are bringing success to the king of Israel and thwarting the efforts of the king of Syria. The king of Syria finds out that it is Elisha who is hurting his mission. And so he sends his army to surround the city in which Elisha is staying. They arrive at night and the entire city is besieged. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, and that's where we'll pick up the reading, 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, 
Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Here's what happens. Elisha's servant wakes up to what he thought was a very bleak situation. And based on what he could see, there's no hope for him and Elisha. He's scared. He's lost all courage. He's determined that the situation is hopeless. And then Elisha prayed for that God would open the servant's eyes to see what he couldn't see. And when the Lord opened his eyes to more than just his physical reality, he could see that God was ultimately in control of the situation. You know, life's not easy. Life is filled with disappointments and defeats. Life has its sickness and its suffering. Throughout life, we face off with temptations and tragedy. Life is not easy. And as a result, it becomes very easy for us to react to difficulty, just like Elisha's servant here. To only see the storm that's in front of us. You think about Jesus' apostles on that occasion in Mark chapter 4 when they're on the Sea of Galilee in that boat and Jesus is asleep below deck and the storm rises as it so often did on that body of water and they become terrified because all they can see is the howling wind and all they can see is the waves breaking over the side of the boat and all they can see is the water filling the boat as it starts to sink. All they can see is the storm. And so they awaken Jesus in a panic asking why he doesn't care about their situation. And the whole time, they're looking at the storm, and they're not looking behind the scenes at the one who rides on deck with them. And when Jesus awoke, he asked, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? In other words, Jesus pointed out that their fear revealed that they were focused on the storm more than they were focused on Him. But what I find so fascinating is that years later, those same disciples who were terrified out on that body of water are standing in a council chamber in front of the highest judicial court in Israel. They're standing in front of the same men saw to the execution of Jesus. And they've been brought there under arrest because they've disobeyed a direct order not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And when that Jewish council gave orders once again to never speak in the name of Jesus, those disciples unanimously said, we must obey God rather than men. They're standing before a group of men who can imprison them, 
who can have them beaten, flogged, whatever, who can see to it that they are executed in some fashion. In fact, Acts chapter 5, immediately after they said we must obey God rather than men, we're told that that council wanted to kill them. What changed from these guys who were scared of death on a boat, but when they stand in front of this council, they're no longer scared to die? What changed? I'll tell you what changed. What changed was that they came to the realization that God's in control. When Christ rose from the dead, when he went to that cross, but he came back to life that third day, when he exited the tomb, they suddenly realized that God's in control, that behind the scenes, who, the one who's on their side is greater than anyone on the other. And we've got to live with that vision. We've got to have that the same degree of focus and, and foresight. We've got to be able to see that the one who's on our side is greater than anyone else. We need to live with the understanding that God's behind the scenes and he's working out his will. And that's good enough for us. That's all we need to know that he's there and that he's in control. That's the entire message of the book of Revelation. In fact, that's the entire message of the Bible. That you've got a father who loves you, who's working behind the scenes to bring about his goodwill. And when we focus on acknowledging and recognizing God's behind-the-scenes operation, what it's going to do to us is deepen our trust in him. I spoke last Wednesday night uh, during our devotional time about teaching Micah to ride a bicycle last week, something we're still working on. But when we first started making those trips down this little slope we were on to help with the pedaling issues, she did not want me to let go of the handlebar. What she couldn't see is that I always had control of the seat. The hand she couldn't see was holding onto the seat behind her so that she was always going to be upright. See, we've got to trust what we can't see. Because although we can't see everything God is doing, He's there and He's doing it. He's in control even when everything seems out of control. So don't focus on the storm. Don't focus on the danger. Don't focus on the difficulty that's directly in front of you. Focus on the one who's got this. Focus on the one who's in control. That's the message we take away from the story of Elisha and this army that surrounded his city. That's the story we take away from these disciples who transitioned from being fearful on a boat to being confident in a chamber. We may not always comprehend what God is doing behind the scenes, but we should never doubt that He is there and that He is fulfilling the promise He made to us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, where it is declared that for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose, He will work all things together for good. Now that verse does not say that life's going to be easy and painless and free of difficulty. That verse does not say that everything we experience is going to be good. What that verse says is that we've got a God who no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, no matter what we endure, He can make something good come from it. And you need, no, need not look any further than the cross to believe that. And so, let's focus 
on recognizing and acknowledging God's behind-the-scenes operation. But let's also focus on applying Christ's lordship to our lives. One of the most fascinating stories to me in all of Scripture appears in Luke chapter 24. It's a story that takes place after Christ's resurrection. It's one of his appearances following his resurrection. In Luke 24, you've got two guys who are traveling from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, which was seven miles away. And they're making this trip, this seven-mile journey, on the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. Now what ends up happening is that Jesus himself appears to them. He shows up and begins walking with these two disciples on this road to Emmaus. But here's what the text tells us in Luke chapter 24 and verse 16. It tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They could not look at him and see that it was Jesus. What's so funny is that the whole time they're talking with Jesus, they're talking about Jesus. So look with me here in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 19. When Jesus met up with these two guys, he asked them what they're talking about. And here's their response. Verse 19, about midway through the verse, they indicated that they were talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, indeed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels and, who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So here, they are walking with Jesus for the majority of a seven-mile journey and completely unable to recognize him while they talked to him about him. And it wasn't until after Jesus taught them. You'll see that in verses 25 through 27 where he explained from the law and the prophets how these things had to happen to the Christ. It wasn't until after Jesus taught them and after he sat down with them and broke bread with them, reminiscent of the bread he broke with the disciples 72 hours earlier at the Last Supper, it wasn't until he taught them and broke bread with them that we're told their eyes were opened in Luke chapter 24 and verse 31. And they recognized him. Here's a takeaway from this story that, that I want you to notice. These disciples were not just blind to Jesus' appearance. They were also blind to his identity. And here's what I mean. You have to pay attention to what they communicated to Jesus without realizing it was Jesus. They referred to Jesus as a man who was a prophet in verse 19. I wonder how disappointing that was to Jesus. Because his entire ministry was devoted to revealing himself as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter would confess in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was not just a prophet. He's more than that. He was God in the flesh. And in that moment, it appeared that these disciples had failed to grasp his true identity. Not only that, they revealed that they were disappointed 
in the outcome. They were disappointed that he didn't fulfill their messianic expectations. They said, we had hoped, that's the disappointment, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had an expectation that he would restore Israel to its rightful place as a kingdom, not under the rule of another. And I bet that was disappointing to Jesus as well because he repeatedly taught that his kingdom would not be established by military conquest, but by voluntary sacrifice. He repeatedly taught that his kingdom was not of this world, that his kingdom was different. He was, as John the Baptist declared, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, and that's how his kingdom would come into existence. And these statements made by these two disciples reveal their failure to fully grasp who Jesus is. And that failure prevented their lives from being impacted by Jesus to the degree that he intended. See, Scripture indicates that Jesus is more than just a great role model, that Jesus is more than just a bold teacher, and that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. Scripture teaches that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that means something. That means that he reigns. You see, Jesus didn't exit the tomb just to go about living a life again. He exited the tomb so that he could ascend into heaven where he would reign next to God on his throne through his kingdom, the church. Christ reigns. Now think about that for a moment. When somebody reigns, when someone is Lord, that means they have power. Not just power to do, but power to control. You see, Jesus' lordship should so affect our lives that he has control over our lives. Our decisions, our attitude, our behaviors, everything about us should be controlled by the will of our master. Christ reigns, and that means that he is in control. And that means that you and I have to surrender to him. Responding to his lordship necessitates nothing less than complete surrender. That's why the call to follow is always a call to repent. You see, when we think about the word repent, we kind of limit it to some degree. When we think about the word repent, we have a tendency to, to simply think about the cessation of a, a wrong behavior or, or an apology or something of that nature. And while those things are included in repentance, they're not the totality of what it means to repent. See, repentance also necessitates the surrendering of that kingdom. When I repent, what I'm saying is I'm laying my will down. I'm laying aside this kingdom that I have so pursued for so long so that I can surrender to and succumb to his kingdom. I want you to think about that rich ruler who came to Jesus. You've heard of him, right? I mean, I talk about him in every other sermon anyway. The rich ruler who comes to Jesus, and he comes with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what another way to pose that question is? 
What do I need to focus on? What's most important here? And that rich ruler comes with that question, and, and Jesus ends up telling this rich ruler that what he needs to focus on, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, is this, as recorded in Luke chapter 18 and verse 22. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and follow me. The instruction for this individual was to give up all of his possessions and give it to the poor. Do you know why? Because that was the kingdom he refused to surrender to his Lord. Jesus imposed a condition on this individual that he does not impose on anyone else because this individual had a kingdom issue. He refused to surrender the kingdom of his finances over to his master. That's the expectation for you and I. That if we're going to follow Christ, we're going to surrender every kingdom over to him. We're not going to retain any kingdom for ourselves. We're going to turn them all over to him. Because in Luke chapter 9, and verse 24, here was the condition for following Jesus. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. There's no room for other kingdoms when you have to deny yourself and follow him. All kingdoms are resigned. All kingdoms must be surrendered over to him, to his control, to his lordship. And that's what we need to focus on this year. We need to focus on ensuring that Christ has complete reign in our lives, that we're not holding on to some specialized kingdom for ourselves. And you can look at your life right now. You can see if you're just like the rich ruler and you've got something you're holding on to that you won't let Jesus have control over. It might be your finances like the ruler. It might be your time. It might be your hobbies and your interests. It might be the arena of your occupation. It might be your home and your family. It might be some aspect of your personal life, but you're not giving it up because you want control of that kingdom. But if we're going to follow, we have to surrender. And so we need to focus on applying Christ's lordship, his reign, to our lives. And finally, we need to focus on making eternally beneficial decisions. There's a story about Balaam that appears in Numbers chapter 22. Balaam was a prophet. He's a prophet who consulted with God. And the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, the king of Moab wanted to hire Balaam to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel because Balak is watching these Israelites exit Egypt, conquer nations on their way to Canaan. And he didn't want to be conquered. So he thought, if I can get a curse pronounced on these people, then I'll be able to defeat them. So he wants to hire Balaam to pronounce a curse. So he sends messengers to Balaam with a handsome fee available if Balaam will just take up this job opportunity. But Balaam tells those messengers, I've got to consult with God to see whether or not I can follow you and meet with Balak. Well, after consulting with God, he finds out that God does not want him to go to Balak. So he tells those messengers, I can't go. 
God said no. Well, Balaam's undeterred. He really wants to, I'm sorry, Balak is undeterred. He really wants to hire Balaam. So he sends messengers again with an even more profitable offer. Balaam once again says, I've got to consult with God. But this time, God agrees to let Balaam go meet with Balak, but with one condition. Balaam will only say and do what God tells him to say and do. And so Balaam goes. He's going to meet Balak. But what's so fascinating, in the very next verse, in Numbers chapter 22, in the very next verse we find out that God was angry with Balaam because he went. God had just given him permission to go on the condition that he gave, and now he's angry with Balaam because Balaam went. And so what God does is he puts an angel in the path who's there to not only oppose Balaam, but we'll find out later, he's there to kill Balaam. The only difference is Balaam's got a really cool donkey. And, and as the story unfolds, that donkey intentionally maneuvers Balaam out of the path of the angel on two occasions and spares Balaam's life. But Balaam just thinks the donkey's being disobedient, so he starts beating him. And the donkey finally turns around and talks to Balaam. And that little fact gets overlooked a lot. Like, Balaam just talks back. I mean, did he expect the donkey to talk to him? They have this conversation, and then suddenly the Lord opens Balaam's eyes, and he can see the angel standing there ready to kill him. Now, here's the big question. Why did God go from okaying Balaam to meet with Balak to trying to kill Balaam the next moment? Was God just that fickle? No. Balaam was that faithful. What the text doesn't reveal to us in this particular chapter is that Balaam had made up his mind that even though he could not say anything that God did not authorize, and he couldn't do anything that God did not authorize, he was going to find a way to benefit from his relationship with Balak financially. Balaam, though he is a prophet that has consulted with God, he started making decisions based on what benefited him immediately rather than what benefited him eternally. See, here's what happens. If you skip over to Numbers chapter 25, you'll find out that the Israelite men began engaging in sexual immorality with Moabite women and then began worshiping Moabite gods with those women. And an unspecified curse came upon them in Numbers chapter 25 in those first nine verses. Then if you skip even further ahead to Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, you find out that Balaam's the one who advised Balak to use the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men into a sexually immoral relationship and then seduce them into worshiping their God. All so that it would bring a curse on them. Balaam couldn't pronounce a curse, but he could advise Balak how to cause the Israelites to curse themselves. That's how Balaam benefited from this relationship with Balak. So Balaam was making decisions at this point in his life that were immediately beneficial, but not eternally beneficial. And Scripture repeatedly teaches that as God's followers, our focus is supposed to be on the eternal benefit, not the immediate benefit. That's why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to, to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Because a heavenly focus, an eternal focus, is one that is concerned about God's will over our own. Paul would say it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He said, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul's point is that followers will align their will with the will of heaven. In fact, that's why on one occasion Jesus rebuked Peter. Well, he rebuked Peter on multiple occasions. But on one particular one, he said this to Peter. It's in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23. He rebuked Peter for not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What happened there? This is just a few verses after Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. What happened was that Jesus, in that same section of Scripture, had informed his disciples that he's going to die, that he's going to be executed, that he's going to have to give up his life. And Peter challenged that. Peter rebuked Jesus and said, that's not going to happen. And Jesus' response was, you're focused on things that man focuses on, not on things that heaven focuses on. Your objective is to fulfill your will, not the kingdom's will, not God's will. Peter had the wrong focus. And so often, so do you and I. We focus on fulfilling our will instead of God's. And 2020, may that not be the case. May 2020 become the year that we focus on making eternally beneficial decisions rather than temporary, temporarily beneficial decisions. Because when your focus is on the eternal rather than the temporal, you increase the likelihood that you will be faithful. When your focus is on the eternal rather than the temporal, you, are more, you increase the likelihood that you will be faithful. And that's important because you won't be saved if you're not faithful. You remember what Jesus told the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10? He said, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Don't miss the implication of that statement. The implication is that in order to receive the crown of life, one must be faithful. So often we're focused on how we receive salvation, and rightfully so, because you can't be saved unless you receive it according to God's will. And we get focused on the fact that in order to receive salvation, we must, be, we must confess our belief that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, and we must. We also get focused on the fact that we must repent of our sins, as we've talked about already, and we must. And we get focused on the fact that in order for our sins to be washed away, we must be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins, and we must. All of those steps, as we so often refer to them, are necessary. They are requirements, and to receive salvation, you must confess, and you must repent, and you must be baptized. But that's not the end of the story. Salvation also necessitates that you remain faithful. That your obedience to Christ continues. That's why in that passage about following Him in Luke 9 and verse 20, Jesus said that to be His follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow Him. It's not a one-time event. It's a continuous thing. And so we need to focus 
on making eternally beneficial decisions. We need to focus on being faithful to the end. We need to focus on aligning our will with God's all the time, not just when it's convenient. May 2020 be the year that we do that. Let me close with this story about a runner named Marla Runyon. She tried to qualify for the Olympic Games in 96 here in Atlanta, but her best time finished short of the mark to make the U.S. team. But she was undeterred. She came back in 2000 and made the U.S. Olympic team and traveled to Sydney for the Olympics, and she finished eighth place at the Olympics in the 1,500-meter race. That was the best finish of a U.S. woman runner in that event up to that point. Now, she didn't bring home a medal, but what made her success, her accomplishment, so remarkable is that Marla Runyon is legally blind. She developed Stargardt's disease, which is, which is a form of macular degeneration. And as a result, she can really only see shapes and blurs, and yet she competed in the Olympics. She says that her lack of vision is an asset because when she's running, she's able to focus on the finish line without being distracted by all the peripheral stuff. She doesn't see the other runners and what they're doing. She doesn't see the crowds and the fans and the things going on in the stands. She simply focuses her limited vision on the finish line. I appeal to the story of Marla Runyon because like her, we must have a singular focus on the finish line. We need to make eternally beneficial decisions so that we make it to that finish line. We need to focus on applying God's lordship on our, uh, over our lives so that we can make it to that finish line. And we need to constantly keep God's behind-the-scene operation in view so that we can make it to that finish line. See, today, ultimately, as we cast this 2020 theme of vision on you, we're challenging you and ourselves to focus on what really matters. And what really matters is that we make it to heaven one day. Right now, as you examine your life, as you take a look at yourself, you may see that you're not on track to make it to heaven. Maybe you have not received salvation as we talked about a moment ago. Maybe today is the day that you confess the identity of Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and you're immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe today we start there and we start your race like that. Or maybe today is the day that you adjust your course. Maybe you got off the right path and it's time to get back on the right one. Maybe there are things you need to do to surrender kingdoms. Maybe you've lost sight of what God's doing behind the scenes and you need the prayers of this congregation to help you see that God is for you and as long as He's for you, no one can be against you. Whatever your need is today, we extend an invitation for you to focus on what really matters. Won't you come while together we stand and sing this song?